I'd like to share with you some scriptures. Fight against them until idolatry is no more and God's religion reigns supreme. But if they desist, fight none except the evildoers. Tell the unbelievers that if they mend their ways, their past shall be forgiven. But if they persist in sin, let them reflect upon the fate of their forefathers. Make war on them until idolatry shall cease and God's religion shall reign supreme. When the sacred months are over, slay the idolaters wherever you find them, arrest them, besiege them, and lie in ambush everywhere for them. If they repent and take to prayer and render the alms levy, allow them to go their way. God is forgiving and merciful. Fight against such of those to whom the Scriptures were given as believe neither in God nor the last day, who do not forbid what God and His Apostle have forbidden, who do not embrace the true faith until they pay tribute out of hand and are utterly subdued. Perhaps you recognize these are not Bible Scriptures. These are actually Scriptures from the Quran. And some folks argue about what they potentially mean, and yet I think it's pretty clear. Somebody doesn't believe, they're an idolater, and the Muslim's job is to kill them. Fight against them. That is completely opposite of what we find told us as Christians in the New Testament. In 2 Corinthians chapter 10, 2 Corinthians chapter 10, beginning at verse 3, the scripture there says, For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging a war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. We understand that our job is not to make war. Our job is not to evangelize at the end of a sword. Our job is not to make converts via suicide bombings or planes flying into buildings. We're fighting a spiritual war. Not a fleshly war. It's a war of ideas. Not a war with physical weapons. And while we'll certainly teach, and while we'll be intent in our teaching, we need to understand that ours is a message of peace. Now, of course, some will tell us that regarding the teaching here that all that the, the Muslims were told is that if somebody attacked them, they were supposed to fight and attack back. Well, even that is contrary to what Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount. If you look in the book of Matthew, in the book of Matthew chapter 5 and verse 38, it says, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, Turn to him the other also. Even if somebody attacks you, don't attack back. Turn to them the other cheek. And, of course, we remember Romans chapter 12 and verse 18. Romans chapter 12 and verse 18, where Paul said, If possible, so far as depends on you, 
live peaceably with all. God has called us to a relationship of peace, even with those who disagree with us. He has not called us to wage war on anyone. He's called us to be at peace. Now, I doubt that any of us would take out a weapon and go to try to convince someone to become a Christian. I doubt that any of us would pull out a sword or take a gun or or whatever it is that we might have to try to convince folks to be Christians. However, sometimes in our evangelistic method, we have a very warrior-like spirit. And even sometimes in the way we talk about it, as we, as we talk about how we had a Bible discussion with somebody and boy, we just blistered them. Man, we just blasted them. When we were done with them, they were wasted. And we toss out our scripture grenades and we, we uh, fire at them with our machine gun logic and when it's all said and done and the smoke is cleared, we're just not sure why they didn't submit. I'd like for us to consider perhaps a different approach. Recognizing that Jesus has called us to peace. And recognizing the fact that an approach of peace actually has power. I'd like for us to consider what we find in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1-6. through 6. And I want us to see here the power of peace in our lives to help us as we deal with evangelism, as we deal with our relationships with other people. As David read moments ago, the Scripture says, Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Now before we actually take a look at this in the context of evangelism, let me share some things. Number one, I understand that the main point of this passage is not really about evangelism. I understand that. However, I think it provides some principles that we can apply to all of our evangelism. Second, I understand that this passage doesn't contain everything we need to know about evangelism. So, the things that I'm going to say today, please don't view them as the exhaustive discussion about how we're supposed to evangelize. That's not the case at all. And thirdly, I understand that in a marriage relationship, there's opportunity to influence that is not necessarily there in all of our relationships. So, I understand some limitations. And yet, as I look at this passage and see what it says about wives who even convert their husbands without saying a word, I can't help but notice in this passage that it demonstrates to us the power of peace in our lives and how it can influence folks and how we might win them for Christ by using the power of peace. Before we look at this, would you bow with me in prayer, please? Almighty God and Father in heaven, we love you so much because you are awesome and powerful. You are the great God who's created all things, who's made this world in a way that we can live in it, and we are amazed and humbled by your mercy and grace upon us. Father, we love you so much and we thank you that you have loved us and that you've sent your word, both the the word who came in flesh and also the word that we have in these pages. We're thankful for the sacrifice of your son. It gives us forgiveness. 
and provides us reconciliation so that we might have peace with you and that we might have peace in you. And we pray, Father, that you would grant us peace, that you would help us to have your peace, and that we might demonstrate that peace to the world, that they might want what we have and come to us to find out exactly how you can help them. Father, we pray that you help us to carry your message to all people. Help us, Father, not to live a life that asks them to consider what we say, but ignore how we live, but rather live lives that attract them to your gospel. Father, help us to have our hearts open to your word today. Through your Son we pray. Amen. In a previous lesson where we talked about the promise of peace, we recognized that peace that comes from God is a convergence of three things. The convergence of a connection with God, the convergence of contentment, and the convergence of conviction that God is God and we are not. And what we see in this sister that we find in 1 Peter chapter 3 is that she in fact has all three of these characteristics. She has peace in her life, and this peace is something that is powerful, that strengthens her to be able to convert her husband even without a word. I'd just like us to see this peace in this woman. And then we're going to talk about why this peace is powerful and why it impacts others. The first thing I want us to recognize is the connection that she had. Peace is a connection, as we learned in Romans chapter 8, beginning at verse 31. In Romans chapter 8, beginning at verse 31, it says, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Here is a connection with God. And what this means is that our emotional well-being comes from God. And when we look at the sister in 1 Peter chapter 3, we see that she had that connection with God. Her hope was in God. And the way she lived was precious in the sight of God. She found that connection there. And, and we see that that impacts her in subtle ways in her relationship with her husband. You see, because her connection is forged in God, She's not having to manipulate her husband to try to gain some type of emotional well-being out of her husband. She's able to accept her husband where he is and simply live her life right because her connection is in God. That's where her sense of well-being comes from. That's where her sense of esteem comes from. And so she's able to just live her right life. She's able to live with a respectful and pure conduct. She's able to live with submission to her husband. She's able to have the respect that she's supposed to have simply because her connection is with God and it's not about her relationship with her husband. That's where she's getting that, that connectedness. I want you to think about how that would impact our evangelism. If we had that peace that comes from God, if we had that connection with God, would that impact how we relate to others? That would take away our fear that teaching them the gospel might cause them to disconnect from us. Because we recognize that our emotional well-being doesn't come from our connection with everybody else. It comes from our connection with God. 
And when we have that kind of peace, we no longer have to manipulate others for our emotional well-being. We can simply do what God has said because that is what is pleasing and that is what provides us with that peace. But second, she had contentment. And we recognize that peace is contentment. Philippians chapter 4, beginning at verse 11, Paul said, and remember this is right after he talked about having the peace that passes understanding, he said, not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. And we see that kind of contentment in our sister in 1 Peter chapter 3, who has a husband that's an unbeliever. And can you consider the amount of discontent that might be able to cause? Our sisters who are here this morning, whose husbands don't believe or aren't faithful, they could talk about the discontent. They could recognize how tough it is to live with contentment when the person who's supposed to be the most important person in your, in your life doesn't have the same kind of faith and is not leading in the direction you'd want him to go, how easy it would be to be discontent to try to figure out some way to have a different husband. And yet that's not what she's doing. She's content. She's accepting her husband where he is. She's content with her relationship with God. And so she's content not trying to grasp or take anything from her husband. Her husband is not the source of money or pleasure or fame or influence. Remember, she's connected to God. And how might that impact our evangelism? If we were content where God had us, if we're content in the relationships that God has us in, if we're content with what God has blessed us, we would no longer view other people as a means to an end. Oh, that's so much the problem when we don't have this contentment. We don't see others just as souls. We often see them as tools to help us. And we see them as someone to get something from. And so, of course, we don't want to have relationships with those weird people or the strange people or the people that are just a little bit different because we can't get anything from them. But if we had the kind of contentment that comes from God's peace, we don't see other people as just a means to an end of bettering ourselves. We see other people as souls that need saving. And we can be content where God has us and simply relate to others as, as those who will show and declare to them the gospel that will help them. But then we also recognize the conviction. We understand that peace is a conviction that God is God and that God is in control. Romans chapter 8 and verse 28. In Romans chapter 8 and verse 28 it says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose. We understand that God is the sovereign ruler of the universe. That God has His job and I have my job and my job's not His job. My job is not to do His things. And when we look at this sister, we recognize that she understood that. She had a conviction that God is the one who is in control. She understood that her job was not to be God. Her job was not to try to figure out what's going to force her husband to obey the gospel. We recognize that her conviction that God is in control removed from her any desire to try to manipulate things so that her husband would have to obey. You see, the conviction that God is in control, that God is the power and we don't have to be the power, how would that impact our evangelism? Would that help remove the fear that we might say just all the wrong things and it paralyzes us so that we don't say anything? 
Would that remove from us this, this fear that I've got to figure out the exact right way to say it and the exact right moment to get it out? Because sometimes we think that we're the power and so we've got to come up with all the best ways to do everything and, and until we figure that out, we don't want to do anything because we might just mess it all up. But when we understand that God is the power, how might that change the way we relate to other people? You see, she had peace. And her husband saw it. And was one without a word. Now, I understand that Peter's not saying that happens every time. I understand that. But we do see that Peter says it will happen some. And what if all of us, like this sister, pursued a life of peace, of connection, contentment and conviction, and allowed that to govern how we related to other people? Why would that impact them? I think there's four keys in this text that demonstrate to us how a life of peace will actually impact others. Will actually influence others. The very first thing is that if our life is governed by peace, we're going to stand out. We'll stand out. John chapter 16 and verse 33. John chapter 16 and verse 33 says, this is Jesus saying, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation. Peace is found in Christ. In the world, tribulation is found. And while Jesus is pointing out that we'll have peace in Him, he is pointing out that in the world there's just tribulation. Those who are in the world, they don't have peace. And so when we live with peace, we'll stand out. Isn't that what this sister does in 1 Peter chapter 3? Doesn't she stand out? When we consider the norm in our society, is this what we see? Someone with respectful and pure conduct? Or do we see folks that let their adorning be the braiding of hair, the putting on of gold jewelry, and the clothing that they wear? But here's someone that stands out. Her adornment is the hidden person of the heart that is precious to God. You see, made-up women who are trying to impress with their makeup and their jewelry and their clothing, they're a dime a dozen. But a woman who lives like this stands out and is unique and catches attention. If we are governed by peace, we will stand out. I can't help but think about Galatians chapter 5. The fact that peace is a part of the fruit of the Spirit. In Galatians chapter 5 and verse 22 it says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. If we allow these things 
to govern our lives, do you think people would notice? If we face the financial turmoil that's going on in our world, but we can always be seen by others as those who have love, joy, peace, patience, and these other characteristics, do you think people would begin to recognize that? Begin to wonder what's different about those people? We would stand out. Think about Paul and Silas in Acts chapter 16. In Acts chapter 16, Paul and Silas were in prison. In Roman stocks having been beaten. But in Acts 16 and verse 25, we see the peace of God governing their lives because instead of railing against the jailer, instead of just simply repudiating them, instead of being caught up in bitterness and resentment, what are they doing? About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for the lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you'll be saved, and you and your household. And they spoke the words of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house, And he took them that same hour of the night and washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Paul and Silas stood out. After the earthquake happened and the jailer came face to face with his own mortality, he didn't go to anyone else. He went to Paul and Silas because Paul and Silas stood out. And I think sometimes we get it backwards. Sometimes... We want just what we say, the doctrine that we teach to stand out. We want everyone to know that here's the right doctrine and we believe it over here and if you don't believe it, you need to come over here. And sometimes we want them to ignore what they see in our lives. But what happened with Paul and Silas is the jailers saw their lives and came and wanted to hear what they had to say. They stood out. Which leads us to our second point. And that is, is that when our lives are governed by peace, not only will we stand out, but secondly, people will want what we have. Why do you think the husband in 1 Peter chapter 3 was one without a word? Do you think it was simply because he... He saw that his wife had earned her way into heaven by being so wonderful and he wanted to try to? Of course not. Neither of them could do that. Do you think that he was just so impressed by her amazingness that he decided, I need to try to be amazing too? I imagine if that were the case, actually he would have thought, I could never be like that, why bother trying? What won this husband here? was that he saw how the gospel had impacted his wife. He saw what the gospel had done to her and for her, and he wanted it. She didn't come in and try to force it on him. She didn't come home after church and kick the, the beer out of his hand as he's sitting there watching the game and start railing at him. And, you need to be better and you need to be more spiritual and start arguing and fussing and fighting. She just lived the life that the gospel teaches. And he saw that. And he wanted it. 
Now, some folks, of course, would think that, that when the woman is actually taking this other approach, that she's braiding the hair and putting on the gold jewelry and the clothing, that folks would see that and they would want that. And some folks do. Some folks are impressed with the issue of, of, of money and, and fame and all that sort of thing. But Proverbs chapter 23, verses 4 and 5 says, Do not toil to acquire wealth. Be discerning enough to desist. When your eyes light on it, it's gone, for suddenly it sprouts wings, flying like an eagle toward heaven. Now, there are a whole lot of people that that's what they want. They want the gold. They want the fame. They want those things. But the problem is that never provides satisfaction. And those who are pursuing that are never satisfied. But those who are pursuing righteousness, who hunger and thirst for righteousness, Matthew chapter 5 and verse 6 says, they're blessed because they are satisfied. And when folks in the world begin to see that in us, they begin to see that we are satisfied. We are content. Because we have the peace that God offers through His gospel. They'll want that. Now, not everybody will want that. I know that. Not everybody will want that. Not every husband of a sister who behaves this way will want that. Not every friend of a Christian who behaves this way will want that. But brothers and sisters, some will want that. And when they see that we have it, where are they going to go? They'll come to us. Just like in Acts 16. The Philippian jailer saw something in Paul and Silas that he wanted. Where did he go? He went to Paul and Silas. Look at Matthew chapter 7. In Matthew chapter 7 and verse 15, the scripture there reads, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You'll recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. The Scripture says that folks will be able to recognize us by our fruit. We must not have this idea that we can produce one kind of fruit and ask folks to ignore it as they listen to the fact that what we're telling them is true. We want folks to hear us because we know that Acts chapter 2 and verse 38 says, Repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins. We know it says that and we're teaching the truth about that passage. And if folks want to be saved, they've got to obey that passage. But if they see that that passage is not impacting our lives, why should they listen to what we say about it? If they look at us and say, why, why would I want your life? Your life is miserable. You're unhappy all the time. You, you don't love anybody. You don't have any peace. You're always stressed out. I can get that where I am. See, if we start allowing these things to impact our lives so that we actually have the peace that God offers, then what will they see? There's a person that has love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness. And it doesn't matter what happens. They still have that love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness. Listen, I'm not saying that we'll never have bad days. But even when having bad days, if we can show the world our conviction that God's in control, that He'll take care of us, we can show our contentment with what God has for us and that we're connected with God. Don't you think that they'll want that? Instead of asking folks to overlook the fruit in our lives, let's get that fruit out there where they can see it. 
Because then when they suffer their earthquake, where will they go? They'll go to the people who have what they want. They want to try to find out how to get it. I mean, the fact is, if you want to know how to make a lot of money, where should you go? People have a lot of money, right? If you want to know how to be really healthy, where should you go? People who are healthy. If you want to have the peace of God, where would you go? To people who have the peace of God. And what each of us needs to ask is that if anybody's looking for that, would they ever remotely come to me and say, how did you get that? If we have this kind of peace that this sister in 1 Peter 3 has, we'll stand out and folks will want what we have. The third thing about it, I'm trying to look for my little clicker. The third thing will stand out. They'll want what we have. Now, don't miss this third one. This one's important. We'll be on their side. And they'll know that we're on their side. The problem is so often is that our evangelism is so combative. We come off as if they are our enemy, and so what do they think of us? We're their enemy. But when they recognize the peace in our life, the peace that says God is in control, God is the one who saves, I'm just here to deliver His message, I'm just here to help people, I'm just here to help and, and share with folks what has helped me, That's a totally different picture. The thing that we need to remember is that the folks that we're trying to teach, they're not the enemy. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 11 and 12. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 11 and 12 says, Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. That's the enemy. The folks that are down here heeding that enemy. They're not the enemy. And if we come to them lobbing scriptural grenades at them as if they are the enemy, guess how they're going to view us? But if instead we come alongside as those who have peace or are connected with God, we've got conviction that God is in control, we're content with where God has us, and so we don't have to prove anything to them, we don't have to impress them, we don't have to... You know, part of the problem is a lot of folks in their evangelism, they're not really as concerned about converting someone to Christ is they are proving to everybody else how right they are. And when we have the kind of peace that God has, that's not our approach. We're not here to try to prove to everybody that we're right. We just found something that saves and we want to share it. And we come alongside as someone who is journeying and working with folks. not someone who is an adversary trying to beat folks. 2 Timothy chapter 2. 2 Timothy chapter 2, beginning at verse 24. There the Scripture reads, And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. 
God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. And they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. When we look at folks who are lost, who are believing error, they're not the enemy. They're captives of the enemy. And if we come to them as if they are the enemy, well, don't be surprised when they don't want to listen to us. But the power of peace allows us to come along beside them as their friend who's trying to help. Uh, no, I, I'm not saying that everybody's going to listen to them. You know, that's, that's one of the problems that I think we often have when we talk about evangelism. We have the idea that if we get it just right, everybody in the world will listen. That's not true at all. Jesus has said that it's always going to be the minority. The question is, is not who's going to win the most people. The question is, how has God asked us to live? And he's asked us to allow the fruit of the Spirit to govern our lives so that we'll, others will see what the gospel can do for them. And they'll want it. And they'll see that we're here talking to them because we care. Not because we think we're better, not because we're trying to prove anything, but because we've found something that works, that saves, and we want to share it. And the fourth thing. These other three keys <coughs> have been about the other person, really, but this fourth thing is about us. When we have the peace that God gives, we won't be intimidated by anything frightening. Is that what this says about this sister? You're her children if you do good and do not fear anything that's frightening in verse 6. She had no need to be afraid of her husband. Now, now Peter wasn't saying that there weren't ever good wives who were married to uh, uh, disobedient husbands who never ever suffered abuse. He wasn't saying that if you're a good Christian, uh, a good Christian wife, that a non-Christian husband won't ever be abusive or mistreated. He wasn't saying that at all. What he was saying, however, is that the wife who is living in this peace, who is living with this connection with God, she has nothing to fear from that. God is with her. God will see her through it. And just like any Christian that suffers persecution at the hands of an unbeliever, God will be with her and see her through that. And what does that mean about our evangelism? If we have this peace that's from God, we recognize that it can remove the fear. Because what if somebody won't listen? What if somebody won't submit or surrender to God? What if somebody turns on us? Because of what we teach. All those things cause us to, to sit back and, and be afraid. But when we're connected to God, content with where God has us, and convicted that God is in control, all that fear and intimidation can go by the wayside. You see, the thing that we need to understand is that pursuing the power of peace and, and allowing the gospel to fill us with peace is not some kind of namby-pamby approach that says, oh, I don't want to say anything. Maybe they'll see me and come to me someday. That's not what it is at all. Having the peace of God allows us that when saying something is the thing that needs to be done, we're not afraid to say it. But that we'll say it with the gentleness and love that God has asked us to. And we can say along with the psalmist in Psalm 118 and verse 6. Psalm 118 and verse 6. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? That's what the peace of God does for us. The Lord is on my side. What can man do to me? 
And when we have this peace, we can be like the apostles. In Acts chapter 4, verses 19 and 20. In Acts chapter 4, verses 19 and 20, but Peter and John answered the council and told them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. They said, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And then in Acts chapter 5 and verse 29, as Peter again stands up, and he says to those who would tell him to stop teaching, but Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than man. You see, when we have this peace, we don't have to fear. That's the power of peace. That's the power of really having God in our lives. We get to let Him be God, and we don't have to try. Our job is just to do what He says. To let His will impact us. And when folks see that, they'll want it. And when it's the right thing to do to teach and talk, we'll be prepared and ready and unafraid. Do you have that peace? God's promised it to you. You get in His Word and surrender to Him. Now I want us to recognize that we don't evangelize at the end of a sword or a gun. We don't evangelize as quarrelsome people out to prove that we're right and everybody else is wrong. But rather, we allow the gospel to impact our lives and let folks see the fruit of it. And when we look in 1 Peter chapter 3, let us not be naive. Peter was not saying that because of the way this wife lived, her husband never had to hear anything about the gospel. He just, he just saw how she lived and knew, okay, I've got to believe in Jesus and turn away from my sins and confess my faith in Him and be baptized for the remission of my sins and, and I, here's all these things that I need to be doing. And that's not what it's saying at all. When it talks about being one without a word, it's saying that by seeing her life, he was one. So listen to what she had to say. Nobody can be saved without hearing. Romans 10, 17, faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of Christ. Peter is not remotely saying that this man was saved without hearing the gospel. He's not saying that this man was saved without ever hearing the command to be baptized for the remission of his sins. The issue is not if we live right, we won't ever have to teach anybody. The issue is if we live right, folks will want to hear our teaching. And that's the thing that we have to understand. When we allow God's peace to infiltrate our lives, folks will want it. And when they do, they'll be willing to listen to those who have it. And so how is your peace? How is your relationship with God? How is it impacting your life? How is it causing you to speak on the job? How is it causing you to act in the present turmoil that's in our country? Because people are watching that before they'll listen to anything you have to say about Acts 238. That is the power of peace.